0: Please note, if you're listening to this, you must be 18 years of age or older. This podcast contains adult themes and may include descriptions that listeners could find offensive. Thank you. The emotion generated by a work of art, be it poetry, painting, or music, may be that tangible, unquestionable feeling of a broadening of the self. It is a feeling of fullness born from a mysterious rhythm, a kind of flight toward the infinite, living as a shared and exchange whose source is our interior world. Daisaku
1: Ikeda. Hello, I'm G. And I'm Em. And on this episode of the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast, we are going to be talking about art and
0: artists. How to separate and how to separate them from the artist. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You are the picker of the topic today, G. I
1: am the picker, the Uh, uh, quicker picker upper. Yeah. Can I say that, or is that like a copyright thing?
0: I have no idea. Can you say that?
1: I don't think since we're in the paper towel business, we, I think I can say that. It's okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we're not competing. We don't produce paper towels yet.
1: I'm sorry. Did you have some, is this like the, th- like the shoes is me? Did you have a, did you have a secret desire to have a a and p <laughs> podcast paper towel?
0: <laughs> so first off, content warning for all of our audience folks for transphobia and also racist imagery. Possibly. Possibly. Possible racist imagery. Um, Not from us. Not from us. While we're discussing artists.
1: Uh, Yeah, there's... I have a couple of things I might want to talk about, which part of the problematic aspect is the imagery in in them, but I'm not 100% certain I'm going to talk about them, but I just wanted to put that content warning up there just in case for people, because I'd like to be considerate to our audience.
0: I think that's that's very good to be considerate and looking ahead and anticipating. First, we're going to talk about death of the author. Gee, tell me what, tell me all about what death of the author is.
1: Okay, so I'm going to talk, I'm first going to talk sort of the more academic uh, definition of death of the author. It is a way, so it specifically started off as a method to analyze literature in such a way that you remove the author's intention and biographical context, and you just judge. The work by itself. So originally, this was proposed by a French literary critic by the name of, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Roland Barthes, Barthe, Barthes, something along those lines.
0: I would have to, yeah, let me see.
1: Actually, you're you're the one who speaks more French than I do. I do
0: speak more French than yours. Normally, the T-H wouldn't be pronounced like it would be a T sound, I'm pretty sure.
1: Bart. Yeah. Barthes?
0: Yeah, we wouldn't pronounce the... Well, wouldn't pronounce the S.
1: So his name is Bart?
0: Roland Bart? Here. Oh, yes. Apparently, you do pronounce the S. Oh, this is the American pronunciation. We don't want that.
1: <laughs> we, want, we
0: don't want the British want pronunciation the either.
1: We want the French pronunciation
0: as well so make sure to stay tuned and consider subscribing he was a french literary theorist essayist and philosopher and other things but how do you say
1: it for reference in france in french it is said as roland barthe yep roland, roland barthe. barthe yeah
0: roland barthe hey you have my beautiful french in this podcast just admire that for a second
1: it's not the first time we've had your beautiful french in the podcast it's a uh kushiel's dart episode
0: oh yeah that we would had make the sense the whole
1: thing about when i started listening to the audiobook to like refresh myself and i was like this lady is not pronouncing the names any way that i was pronouncing them in my head and i was like oh no
0: oh no <laughs> that's funny okay so Roland. now i'm yep. just saying that in a very not correct way
1: yeah, yeah. I guess we should get back to the topic on hand and not be one of those rambling podcasts.
0: Definitely don't want to be a rambling podcast. Yeah, like we were last podcast episode.
1: So that's sort of the, uh, the sort of the more original way that death of the author was intended as like a, a way to analyze literature, and it's kind of spread from there. Like there are a bunch of ways you can sort of analyze media, like removing the intention of the author or the biographical context or the historical context and just analyzing the text by itself. And I'm, and I think there, and I want to speak on sort of the more practical level of not just academic study. On a more practical level, I think there is a, I think it's useful to realize that what you pull from a work could be something entirely different than what the author originally intended. And that's okay. Like whatever meaning you derive is, is, val- is as valid as anything that was whatever meaning the author put in, at least in my opinion. So that's sort of the more practical level, of sort of death of the author. And of course, nowadays, people sort of use death of the author in more of a political sense. And I realize I'm straying from my notes here, but sort of a sense of like, because I, you know, disagree with this author in some way, that's outside the text, like I can just pretend the author doesn't exist for the purposes of me enjoying the text or the media. But we're going to be talking about this podcast is about that separation of like separating and separating a creator from their work when that can be when that can be useful and when that can be difficult. And also, you know, the various lines that you can draw for yourself, because I want to be very clear, very clear, right up front, I am not advocating for any specific line to be drawn with any specific creator. I think this is a very personal choice that you have to make for yourself. But I think it is also valuable to reflect on it. And I hope that this podcast will give you more information for you to reflect on in the choices that you make.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I like that you know, right up front that you're being very clear that, you know, we're not trying to persuade you one way or another, as much as it is that just encouraging that thinking and that open mind about it. And to to acknowledge that it's often hard to criticize things that you love, or to be able to hold the paradox of loving something and simultaneously not enjoying some aspects, including who created it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think it's an important skill that as, as human beings, we can hold two conflicting ideas in we our can. head. And recognize that both those conflicting ideas are valid. So
0: did you say about being on a more practical level?
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: So one argument that I've seen, and I wanted to frame this even though we'll go into it later a little bit too. But one of the things that I've seen is that, you know, some people who are very much like, no, you cannot separate the art from the artist. They say, no, art is a reflection of who that person is. So if you support them or if you engage in their art or whatever, consume it, then you are supporting their beliefs. And what I think in response to that is like, yes, our creations as artists like do reflect us. Like there is things in us that are reflected in our art. And simultaneously, like we are complex human beings. So art, yes, reflects who we are, but we are also, like, many different things. And I will say, we're going to be talking about J.K. Rowling in a bit, and it even applies to her. So this can be why different people can get different things out of a work, because they might see parts of the author reflected that they actually are like, I really like that, and they might enjoy that aspect. But that does not mean that they necessarily are saying that they support... The entirety of the artist I think
1: yeah actually there's I would like to sort of give an example of something that we said earlier like you can hold two conflicting ideas in your head because I just thought of one mm-hmm. I just sort of want to give this as like a concrete example in case anybody's having sort of trouble grasping what we're talking about so Dune one of my favorite science fiction books and when I was a teenager was my favorite science fiction book like, period. Might have been my favorite book, period, when I was a teenager. I still have a lot of respect for Frank Herbert. I still have a lot of... I, I still enjoy reading Dune, the original book, and even some of the sequels. I don't know why I said that way. I also enjoy reading the sequels, though not to the same degree as I enjoy that original book. But I also have come to recognize, as I've grown older, that it is essentially a white messiah story. Like, a a foreigner comes what
0: white savior kind yeah, of thing yeah, yeah
1: white savior it's like a foreigner comes from off world and is a better space arab than the space arabs which is highly problematic but i also uh, and this kind of separates this is kind of different from death of the author which you know death of the author in the academic sense like oh well, we need to divorce entirely from its from its author's intention and biographical context You know, I recognize that for the time that Dune was published, it was fairly progressive. Like, at the time, science fiction just showed white people in space when Dune was published, for the most part. And actually showing cultures that were not explicitly based off the Western world was very progressive for the time. And so, you know, I can hold these conflicting ideas in my head that, one this uh, dune is one of my favorite books and two there are some deeply problematic elements to it Even if those elements made sense at the time.
0: I actually have a note about this and I was going to leave it for the end, but I think this is a really good transition to one of the things. So the the main topic of our show today is going to be on separating the art from the artist. but Mm -hmm. even art that's made by really progressive, awesome people who we totally support, their political beliefs are aligned with us, their personal beliefs align with us, their, you know, they do activism in the way that we imagine, whatever it is, even those authors or artists can fuck up in their art and do things that are problematic and they can never please everyone also so one of the things that i was thinking of was a video game called boyfriend dungeon Mm -hmm. which i would love for us to do a full episode on at some point but the it's very in my opinion it's very like forward thinking and open-minded in that There's trans and non-binary characters, and there's, like, polyamory is accepted in the game, but there's a little bit of a piece that happens where there was a lot of criticism of the creator's choice about it, and it was this whole big thing, and we, obviously people who feel a certain way about that specific thing that happened, they don't have to play, obviously. And they are welcome to criticize it. But also that does not automatically mean just because there was a problematic element in it that that takes away from other positive things about the author. So even really amazing authors and artists that we love, they can still do shitty things and they will do
1: shitty things. Even with the best of intentions.
0: Even with the best of intentions. Yep, absolutely.
1: Yeah, nobody's perfect. And we're all just trying to do our best to make our way through this world.
0: Right. And that being said, there is, like, some people that, you know, you find yourself a little bit more at odds with.
1: Yeah. So we're going to talk about the elephant in the room. We've already mentioned J.K. Rowling. Rowling.
0: I always say Rowling. I don't really know. Should we also Google that one?
1: I don't think it matters, and I don't... (laughs) You don't care. Don't care. So... I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like as someone who is trans, like, J.K. Row- Rowling is kind of the elephant in the room when it comes to, like, separating the art from the, uh, as the art from the artist.
0: No, this totally applies to me, too. Okay. Definitely.
1: So, for, so, for our audience folks, who may not know who J.K. Rowling is, or why she might be the elephant in the room when it concerns, uh, trans people talking about this subject... She is the author of the Harry Potter book series. I'm going to assume that you've at least heard of Harry Potter in some fashion. However, the probably the second thing that she is most famous for is coming out with...
0: Very transphobic rhetoric.
1: Very transphobic rhetoric and, and aligning herself with TERFs on the internet.
0: Which uh, turf, for those who don't know, stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical
1: Feminist. Yeah.
0: Which can be debated if that's even...
1: Well, she, from my understanding, I have not been paying super close attention to it, but my understanding is she does not, she does not view herself as a TERF, which is why I phrase it as she has aligned her She's views. She's aligned
0: her views with turfs. With
1: TERFs. And this can be, you know, for me, I loved Harry Potter as a teenager. Like I read all those books as I was growing up. I felt like those books grew up with me like the tone of the of the later books gets much darker and I don't think I was like ready to like read those books when that, when the book series Absolutely. started. You know, I felt like those books grew up with me. I watched all those movies came out, as they came out and it has been, you know, I put in my notes that it's been frustrating, but it's it's kind, it's agonizing a little bit. I'm not I'm not sure if that's the right word I want to use, but it's seeing her come out. I mean, Because this started, I think, even before I started to recognize myself as being trans. So it was frustrating back then. But now that I am, it's like, I don't know, it it hurts. I don't know how else to to put it.
0: Yeah, it's very disappointing. And I guess for me, it was like, actually, if I I can be honest, I never really cared about her as an author to begin with. Mm Mm-hmm. I cared about the stories because I also grew up with them, but I grew up with them younger. So I grew up with them differently than how you grew up with them. But when I thought about the work, it was almost in that sense of that we talked about in the beginning where I kind of already had a death of the author kind of thing where I was like, these are just stories. And I didn't even think about the fact that there was someone writing them. Obviously, I knew that she wrote them. But in my head, it was like, well, these stories are just... And they were like obviously very popular and consumed by all of my classmates and my, my family. But when she came out as, you know, showing these turfy signs, it didn't surprise me, nor did it like necessarily hurt me very badly. Because I was just like, okay, well, then that's it. I guess for me in that moment of like reexamining this, I didn't feel that I never had that moment of being like, oh no, now I can't enjoy Harry Potter or oh no, now I can't do XYZ. I was just like, okay, she's a shitty person. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I think it was a perfectly valid way to look at it. I can tell you they can tell you the exact moment where I was like, I want to yeet every single copy of Harry Potter I had into a fire. Because this was back when she just sort of started coming out with this. I mean, she's kind of, she kind of flirted with it for a while, but was kind of coy about it. But when she like first started coming out publicly, sort of aligning herself with with turfs online, I think the very next week there was some legislation in Oklahoma where a Republican senator cited her cited her Wait. concern as why he was vetoing a bill to that was supposed to protect trans people and. I was livid. Like, this... I mean, I have no doubt that he probably would have done the same no matter what, but... But that her words... Her words was giving him cover, which he was gladly using, because he could just say, it's like, look, it's not, it's not just me who's expressing concern, it is world-famous children's book right. author jk rowling
0: <laughs> right and this yeah absolutely this is where it gets like and to a point where like yeah i can see how you would be very much wanting to throw your copies or light them on fire or whatever i actually don't own any copies of the books
1: and i still have all the so copies i, never... I got yeah. from when i was a teenager but yeah that was the moment where i was like this either through intention or through obliviousness she has managed to She essentially has given cover to everybody who wants to maliciously attack, at the time, just maliciously attack a marginalized community. Now it's a marginalized community that I'm a part of. And it's just incredibly frustrating.
0: I think more than anything, what I felt was just disappointment. Because I was like, I don't like to see anybody use this kind of transphobic rhetoric and because it's someone who is very popular and a lot of her work is consumed by a lot of people, I think that's where I was like, well I'm I'm just disappointed.
1: Yeah, I understand that.
0: So you made the decision not to financially support her.
1: I did. I did make the decision to the best of my ability not financially support J.K. Rowling, which now that i've said that out loud i realize i have actually like i remember buying the the harry potter board game for r because i thought i thought he and his his child would really like it so it hasn't been like a perfect boycott on my part but uh, i did make that decision but i also recognized that it was a relatively easy decision for me to make
0: to like financially not support her as best as you can
1: yeah because i kind of even before this all came out, I had already drifted away from Harry Potter for various reasons. Like, there wasn't really anything new coming out that interested me. I think at the time, the big thing was like the Fantastic Beasts books, but they were more like children's books, even more so than like the Harry Potter books themselves. And she'd also been tweeting out all this stuff where I was like, oh my goodness, please just stop tweeting. I remember her announcing like, oh yeah, Albus Dumbledore uh, is gay over Twitter. And I was like, you had eight books you had who knows how many thousands of pages and eight books to make that clear in the text and you didn't if you couldn't fit it in eight books it wasn't that important and then i and then i think there was like a little bit of a controversy when she was coming out with the name of the american schools were with like indigenous people which i didn't really follow at the time Mm -hmm. but the real thing which was like the nail nail the coffin for my fandom at the time of like, alright, I'm just not going to pay attention to anything more she has to say about Harry Potter. Was her tweeting about the fact that wizards just took dumps in the hallways and then just magicked their their poop away. And I was like, oh my god, I can't.
0: See, I didn't follow it. I don't follow any of her tweets. I never did. So I also, like, didn't subject myself to a lot of this awfulness.
1: Yeah, that, w- that was like, alright. I So yeah, I recognized that I'd already drifted away from... The Harry Potter fandom because of what I still consider to be sort of asinine decisions to sort of tweet out story details. Though I did try to reread the books recently. A friend I was staying at a friend's place and I and they had a copy that I that I started reading the first book Harry Potter's and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I just couldn't. I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't get into it. And it's difficult for me. To parse out my feelings of... Am I not able to get into it because I'm simply a different reader than I was back when I was a teenager? Like I said, the books kind of grew up with me. So I'm just in a very different point in my life now. I'm a very different reader than I was back then. So is it just because I'm no longer that kind of reader? Which is perfectly valid. Or is it just because there's like this looming pall of her views in my head that kind of colors everything? yeah I just I just couldn't I couldn't get into it. Uh, I don't know. Have you tried to reread them?
0: I haven't. I haven't tried to reread them. I haven't watched the movies again, and I haven't listened to the audiobooks again. I've done nothing except play the Harry Potter board game that I <laughs> uh, got from somebody, and uh, that's it. But I don't really have a desire mm-hmm. to proactively do it. There are some people that I like, yeah, I would watch the movies again with you for because they want to experience it and haven't. But now, obviously, I can go back into it with a different mindset. And also, we can't talk about everything that's problematic in Harry Potter, because there's a lot of problematic stuff, but I do want to just briefly say that in addition to all the transphobia and all these other weird things that had been brought up, there's also a lot of, like, anti-Semitic imagery and...
1: Yeah, if if you want to know the specific thing that caused me to stop reading, it's when they go to Gringotts for the first time. And I guess when I was a teenager, like, I kind of imagined the goblins, like, Warcraft or Warhammer goblins, mm-hmm. like, they're green. Right. And kind of, they've got some other characteristics. I mean, there's also, I mean, if you really want to dig into it, there are also some problematic aspects to that. But, you know, there's at least some other defining characteristics. But I, I think the exact words I read were, they had clever faces. I was like, Oh, my goodness. Like, I know why I didn't get it. Because I was a teenager at the time. But there's not a single other adult that got this when this book was coming out. Like this got through the whole entire editing process. To be
0: honest, I still have a hard time. Like, even when I'm reading some of this problematic stuff, a lot of it goes over my head, because I don't know what these idioms or metaphors or anything like that, sometimes I really don't know what they mean. And so they just literally pass over my head even today even now that I'm not a kid.
1: And I guess it, it really leapt out to me as, like, uh, as an adult reader, because it's not an actual physical description. Like, clever face doesn't tell me actually anything about what their face looks like. But now that I'm more versed in what sort of some of the stereotypes that are associated with anti-semitic beliefs i'm like wow you've just called this non-humanoid banking race that controls all the finances of the wizarding world they have clever faces and that's the only physical description you give them and it's like oh mm, that's a mm, that's a yikes from me
0: yeah and i think again that's something where i'm like i maybe would have glossed over it i maybe it wouldn't have even like stuck out to me at all
1: yeah i mean if you're not
0: and i am familiar with some of the things And now, obviously, having read the critiques and having now, like, been like, oh, okay, yes, there's anti-semitic stuff in here, and I get that, but if I didn't explicitly read someone that walked me through, like, this is the anti-semitic things, I would have been like, they would have been over my head. But I I needed it to be more explicit for me personally to understand, oh, yeah, right, okay, now I see. Obviously, I believe when people say there's this XYZ problematic problem in something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I saw it or experienced it myself. But yes, now that I have had somebody be like, oh, it's anti-Semitic because X, Y, Z. And then I'm like, oh, okay, yes, got it. I think, though, what's really great is, so, like, there's problematic characters. There's problematic views of certain races, like we're saying with... What are they called again? The goblins. The goblins. Are they just called goblins? Yeah. Okay, yeah, because uh, in my head, too, goblins are also, like, a little bit more... Green? Yeah, green. Yeah, green.
1: Yeah, I think, I think Warcraft has really sort of popularized um that view of goblins that view of goblins especially world of warcraft uh, makes sense but you know for me like between warhammer fantasy and warcraft me playing warcraft 3 like whenever somebody mentions goblins that's usually the first thing i think of short people with green skin
0: right yeah and so there's a lot of problematic things and also with Rita skeeter yeah there is some anti-trans stuff going on there as well what what's nice about like or sorry not what's nice but yes there are these problematic aspects and i found that one of the ways that you can still enjoy the world is by reading fan fiction this goes back to everybody has a different line that they think crosses it yeah because some people are like, no, I don't even want to read fan fiction that relates to this universe, and that's totally fine. Uh, that's your personal choice. And there are some people who are still like, I still want to consume and or write fan fiction, and it becomes its own universe in its own world. And a lot of the authors I've seen them rewrite these characters or rewrite these people to be just like, first of all, different and less like just taking out the shitty aspects so i know some people enjoy that
1: yeah i think one of the main ways i i enjoy the harry potter franchise nowadays is actually through tiktok because there's this one one british lady who does like a mcgonagall impression
0: i've heard about this person now just for the audience folks i want you to know i don't have tiktok
1: i think that's like the third time you said that so far
0: we said i said that in my pre-talk
1: oh you said that in the pre-talk okay sorry there there's a there's a there's a british lady who like does these skits while impersonating mcgonagall and they're just hilarious and it really i don't know it just i love the fact that they're i mean like i said even before this whole anti-trans turf stuff started to come out i'd already drifted pretty far away from the fandom so it was great just to have a way to sort of enjoy the fandom again and and even if it like i enjoyed them for myself but also, it was just nice to see somebody who just reveled in it, if that makes sense. Like, they were funny skits, but it's also obvious that the skits came from a deep passion, which I also enjoyed watching that passion. And it, it was nice to see somebody pulling po- something positive out of all this, uh, which I wasn't able to, but I'm really glad they were able to.
0: yeah. Definitely. So we've now talked about JK Rowling quite a bit. But I do have another example to talk about in separating the art from the artist. So the line is different for everybody, as Mm we have said. And again, with the Harry Potter example, some people will decide not to financially support her. Some people will or will not engage in consuming fan fiction. Everybody has a different level. And a different line, and I do you know those alien comics by Nathan W. Pyle that are the little blue aliens that kind of describe like normal everyday human things, but in like technical terms?
1: Like, yeah, I remember them being like a Facebook meme for a while.
0: Yep. So that guy, I remember uh, specifically that someone found out because uh, I guess his like he promotes his main page as well as the comics, and his main page has like some personal stuff on it that's public, and his. I guess it was his wife or whatever went to a March for Life. Yeah. And he was there with her, I think. And he was called out about it. And like, people were like, why? Why are you going to these things? And he responded that, like, yes, he supported his wife in this. And it doesn't have anything to do with his comics or whatever it was. And he seemed kind of respectful, but I decided actually to unfollow him. It was my choice. I didn't put it on anybody else I didn't campaign against him I didn't say stop reading his comics I barely talk about this actually to anybody and I really liked those comics actually so now now that I've given myself some space from him and I've been able to think about he's a complex human being and also so are his like his family also complex human beings and maybe there's a way that I could find to enjoy his art without necessarily making it seem like I might condone uh, any of his pro-life views.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's always difficult when some, when the creator of something you like comes out on a position which seems antithetical to your personal morals. Uh, I think another example for me is Orson Scott Card, because I, you know, I remember reading Ender's Game, and Speaker for the Dead, and Ender Shadow, and 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 enjoying them all for the most part. Uh, but then when I found out that he was actively donating money to anti-LGBT foundations, I was like, well, I, you know, I, I can't really, I can't support that. Like, it's... It's it's kind of a different thing from J.K. Rowling, mm-hmm. uh, because with J.K. Rowling, just her voice changes the discussion. Absolutely. Now, someone with Orson Scott Card, who is a relatively successful science fiction author, but I I wouldn't say, like, his Twitter changes the public right. discourse. Right. But he's putting his money where his mouth is. And if he's going to put his money where his mouth is, I decide that I was also going to put my money where my mouth is. And I've never, I've never bought any of his books ever again. I have, I have thought about watching the movie, and and here's where things get more complicated. I feel like adaptations are just that adaptations. Like there might be some involvement. I mean, obviously there's a paycheck, but there might be some involvement by the original creator. But there's also a lot of other people who are working on it, uh, especially for something like a movie or a TV show. There's hundreds of people working on those projects
0: and many of them might not even know
1: yeah i mean it's not i don't think it's a well-known fact like about orson because i'm like jk rowling who puts all her views on twitter including stuff about wizards pooping on the floor i'm sorry i'm just never going to get over that (laughs) you know orson scott card keeps it relatively quiet so you know it's not it's not a well-known fact i think that he supports anti LGBT.
0: uh... I wouldn't have known if you didn't tell me, but I haven't read his work, actually.
1: Yeah,
0: I had thought about getting into it. And like, now that I know it, it makes it more complicated. But I can now go if I do decide to read or watch the movie or whatever, I can go into it with that thought of, okay, I know. I think like, that's, that's what this episode is about. Like, you have the knowledge now, and you can now have that conversation with yourself. about like, where is the line? And for me, I'm like, maybe I do want to read... It's Ender's Game is the big one, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm like, maybe I want to read that to have that experience once. If it's like, do you think it's like super good? I remember it being really good. I've heard good things, so...
1: The the sequels don't quite have the same tension to them. Just because like there's, there's a very sort of real tension. There's a real sort of ticking clock in... Ender's Game which is hard to replicate Mm -hmm. once that ticking clock is solved in Ender's Game so it's hard to replicate that tension I feel like. Also I remember somebody pointing this out to me, this was regards to music, not books, but I feel like it could also apply to books in that like when a band makes it really big with like their first album it's usually something they've been working on for like multiple years like maybe even a decade like trying to get it to the point where a record would actually release it or publish it. I, I don't know how music works. And then the record company turns around and is like, all right, I need you to do the same thing by next year. I need you to do another, like, 12 songs by next year. And so fans get disappointed by the, by the second album because it's not as good as the first one, but the first one had a lot of time to cook. So I feel like that happens to a lot of authors. Like, they spend a lot of time tinkering and perfecting their first book, and then the second book comes, you know, when their first book becomes famous, like, they have... The publisher turns crunch. around. It's like, all right, you do another one of these in two years, right? <laughs> I've lost my train of thought, but oh, right. So we've talked to a lot of artists that we have, for one reason or another, decided to stop supporting. I guess an example of somebody who I still read their works or derivatives of their works, even though they were highly problematic, is H.P. Lovecraft. Who... Oh yeah,
0: you've mentioned this because they're dead, right? He's oh, dead. Yeah.
1: He, he's he's very dead he was also really racist he was really racist by the standards of the 1920s
0: <laughs> oh that's very very racist
1: yeah so but it's i don't know i find if somebody's dead it, you know going back to the orson scott card thing like they no longer have money or mouth to put money to mouth to and you know you can understand you can still enjoy a work Even if you understand there are problematic elements to it. Going back to what I said at the beginning of the episode regarding Dune, like Dune is still one of my favorite books. I still enjoying I still enjoy reading the works of HP Lovecraft. But I also recognize that there are problematic elements to it. And you know, if somebody said that they, you know, want to run a Call of Cthulhu game, you know, I'd be I'd be down to play that with people but again it's a lot easier because they're dead and you can you know you can do that work of you know of like of of analyzing the work and recognizing what elements of it are problematic
0: so literal death of the author yes the author is now literally dead and now
1: the author's literally dead do whatever the fuck you want and whatever future intentions they might have had are moot. So now all you have to do is decide whether their past behavior warrants you drawing a line somewhere. I think with Call of Cthulhu, it's made easier not only by the fact that HP Lovecraft is dead, but it's also a relatively open media universe. Like, a lot of people have written a lot of Lovecraftian style horror.
0: So similar in that fan fiction-y way.
1: Yeah, similar in the fanfiction way. You know, people have made a very successful RPG, which I've heard a lot of good things about. The people are claiming it for themselves. Yeah. And they're and I think the thing I I like most is that there are people like the people who who continue to write in that universe recognize that problematic aspect and work to address it. And yeah, that that makes it a lot easier. If so that's probably an example of like a problematic that I have, like I, re- I do like the works of H. P. Lovecraft. How about you? Do you have a?
0: Honestly, not that I can think off the top of my head. Like okay. I've never actually read anything by H. P. Lovecraft. I'm sure I support a lot of problematic people, or rather, that I consume problematic people's art. I mean, but I don't have any good example off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, and I think I've told you this before. Like I try to imagine people complexly, like in and understand that nobody's perfect. And this goes all the way back, you know, throughout history. Like, you can find people who are venerated or despised, and you can find elements that of their lives which are ignoble or noble, depending on however they were cast by history.
0: So, yeah, I mean... One of your favorite sayings that have stuck with me is that people leave complicated legacies.
1: Yeah, they leave complicated legacies. And it's... And I think it's good to... To analyze that legacy, to decide for yourself, like how, how you want to approach a work. Because if you, because if you don't, you might like intentionally harming somebody due to your lack of your, your lack of knowledge or ignorance. Like, you know, so this is not a favorite of mine, but do you know about Dr. Doolittle? Like
0: about a controversy with it?
1: And no, just like, do you know about the original story of Dr. Doolittle?
0: I don't think the original story, no.
1: Okay. Yeah. Don't ever read it. Oh, okay. I got it off Audible. It was like a free okay. like, gift that they were giving, and one of the options for the free gift was Dr. Doolittle. I was like, oh, yeah, like, I guess there was an original story that per- came before the musical. Let me, you know, let me give it a try and see, like, you know, what sort of cute, I assume, children's story-esque story came out of Victorian England. Mm-hmm. And Wow. Highly racist.
0: Okay. Very,
1: but you know, if for some, for whatever reason, like I did not recognize that imagery, and I had, and I then recommended it to a friend of mine (laughs) who who did recognize that imagery, like it'd be like, oh, like what? Right.
0: But at the same time, that's also human, and I would hope that your friend would be like, a G. This is problematic because X Y Z.
1: Yeah.
0: Or someone. I hope that at some point you would discover that.
1: Yeah. But I mean this. Yeah, you know, I'm realizing this episode's really about communication. <laughs> yeah, you know, just communicate with each other and understand that we are. I oh, don't know. I've. You know, we're all just trying to muddle along.
0: Exactly, we're all trying to muddle along. Yeah.
1: And you know, it's you know, if your friend comes to you. No, nah, I don't know where I'm going with this train of thought. Oh my goodness, a thought just came across my head. Star Trek. So. There is, there is a recent controversy with Star Trek regarding, uh, regarding the new animated series, Lower Decks. Okay. It uh, had like an orgy scene and people were like decrying the sort of explicit sexuality of it. And I was like, this is not how Gene envisioned Star Trek. And I was like, I, I don't know about you all, but I remember the miniskirts. <laughs> In the original Star Trek. This seems exactly like something Gene would have wanted in Star Trek if he could have gotten away with it.
0: Oh, hey, that's an artist who we had talked about this. Because mm-hmm. did we do a Star Trek episode? We did, right?
1: Yeah, those was just TNG, I think. Just TNG. you haven't watched the original series.
0: But as I found out when I was doing some research, he's someone who had been homophobic, actually. Yeah. And he had later come out and said, yes, I did used to hold those views. And yes, I have had to change them. And he had changed them, but he was very like aware that he had committed some harms because he had been homophobic. Yeah. So I guess in that way, I do still consume Star Trek. But obviously his views don't necessarily match up with any what anybody's doing today with Star Trek.
1: Yeah. And you know, there's a lot I'm sure if you dug into any per any executive producer back in the 60s or 70s you'd find some sketchy stuff but we but you know something with something like Star Trek like that series has grown and evolved over the years and it's really hard to like in a lot of ways like it no longer really matches how Gene Roddenberry originally envis- envisioned it you know he was very he was very explicit about the idea of like Starfleet is not a military organization despite the fact that they have military ranks and fly around in a ship that has weapons on it and do expressly defend the Federation from exterior threats. (laughs) He was very explicit about the idea they are not a military organization, which leads to some quirkiness in the original series, I feel like. And this even bleeds a little bit into TNG because he was also part of, like, season one of TNG as an executive producer. But, you know since he left like sort of people recognized you know well is a military organization like you, you can't really beat the bush around that but now we can sort of explore these stories about like what does it mean to have a military in what is supposed to be a you know utopian society and that's another thing that's changed in star trek like gene ronberry was very adamant about the idea of like no like humans have gotten better like they are in a utopia like we don't it's like we don't tell stories about how we we don't tell stories about how things have gotten worse. Like the hum, humans have evolved, and they are better than they were before. So it's not until like the later Star Treks where that's sort of called into question. Like, has humanity actually evolved? Like, is it an actual utopia? If there are people who are willing to leave the Federation, like, what does that say about the Federation? And What does that say about the people who leave it? And also. hmm
0: also i think it would be bad if you couldn't leave a utopia
1: yeah <laughs> uh, i think it's a dystopia at that point right but yeah i think for i think for works that continue to grow and evolve it's especially past their original creators it's at least for me personally it's easier to sort of to accept the fact that those creators were problematic but i can still sort of enjoy their works yeah star trek i wish i wish i thought of that when i was writing the notes That's okay, it's a good example. So do you have any ending
0: thoughts for... I do, and I was also just was googling a thing. So, really quickly, just look at the end of the notes, G. Really quickly, I wanted to quickly talk about fantasy novels by LGBT creators, because we talked so much about how shitty and awful J.K. Rowling is. I wanted to end on a more positive note by giving a shout-out, just to let you know I haven't read these books, but these are just some that you might want to look into. They're, they're queer, they're written by queer authors. Um, so there's Nimona by Noelle Stevenson. This little description in this article, which I will link in the show notes, says dragons, adventures, shape-shifting, cute illustrations. Noelle Stevenson's breakout graphic novel is one of the most fun, vibrant fan stories you're going to find. If you happened to dig Shira and the Princesses of Power, on which Stevenson served sh- as showrunner, you might have some idea of the narrative sensibilities you're getting into here. Then there is... All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Drain, which says that it uh, won the Nebula Award for Best Novel in 2017 and it is a Yugo finalist telling the story of an ancient society of witches and a tech startup going to war with reality itself on the line. Throw in some star-crossed lovers and deep insight into both science and magic and you got yourself a winner. And finally, Magic for Liars, a novel by Sarah Gailey. If you are feeling a gap in your life where a book about Magic uh, Academy should be, check out Magic for Liars. It's a Locus Award finalist for Best First Novel. Sarah Galley's debut is a blend of modern fantasy and big noir sensibilities. It follows Ivy Gamble, a a private investigator who is forced to reunite with her sister who teaches at the Osthorn Academy for Young Mages in order to solve a case. Those are snippets that I was just reading from an article published by Julie Monti on Gizmodo, and I will link to that article in the show notes.
1: Okay, and do you mind if I give a couple of personal recommendations? Absolutely. So this is me kind of going off the top of my head, but one explicitly... Queer a book I read recently was Gideon the Ninth, which is, I guess the the elevator pitch for it is a lesbian space necromancers, which I really enjoyed reading it. I, I I liked it a lot. I'm still about halfway through the sequel to the book, and the I'm I'm forgetting the author's name, but I'm sure if you look up Gideon the Ninth, you you'll be able to find it. The other explicitly queer book I would recommend is dreadnought which is about an explicitly trans superhero and the struggles that she has because she was not out she this isn't really a spoiler but mild spoilers like she transforms into the superhero and is basically outed because of it and so dealing with the repercussions of both being a superhero and being a newly outed trans uh, person. I really enjoyed it and its sequel. I believe there's a third book in that series coming out soon. Hopefully. Okay. Yes. Uh, so yeah. Dreadnought and Getting the Ninth would be my two explicitly queer recommendations.
0: Nice. All right. Well, on that note. Will you link to those in the show notes?
1: I will link the, I will link to those in the show notes so that way you can go find them. So if you like this podcast and us talking about, if you like the art of us talking about separating art from the artist, uh, you can, uh. And you do
0: not want to separate us quite
1: yet from the art that we are making today. <laughs> you can, you can share this podcast with your friends who might also want to learn about art and separating and reflecting on how they want to consume art. You uh, can
0: also donate using the link at the bottom of the show notes. This is M. And this is G. Don't be afraid to love how you love.
1: Love what you love.
0: And love who you love.
1: If you'd like to get in touch with either M or myself, you can tweet us at KNP Podcast. You can find us at knppodcast.tumblr.com, Or you can email us at kinky.nerdy.poly at gmail.com. Let me open the door. Okay. Hopefully
0: it doesn't fuck up our sound too much. Oh, that feels nice. Oh, ooh, that's nice. Oh, mm. Give me that cold air. Yeah. Now I can breathe. Oh, I can breathe. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, my God. I feel amazing. Refreshing. (laughs) Okay.